Super excited. We're going to start a brand new sermon series tonight. It's going to be called Dr. Luke, and I've been wanting to do a sermon series on this kind of topic for a long time, so I'm really excited to do this. And this sermon series is going to be a verse-by-verse study, meaning that we're going to take the book of Luke, and we're obviously going to have like a Doctor Who kind of theme to it. We're going to take the, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and we're going to go verse-by-verse all the way through it, which is a lot of verses and a lot of chapters, and it's going to be awesome. And again, I've been wanting to do this for quite a while. Now, Luke actually is the longest gospel. So we're kind of overachievers, right? I mean, we have to do the longest. It's not the longest in chapters. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that Matthew has 28 chapters and Luke only has 24. So it's not the longest in chapters, but it most definitely is the longest in verses. As a matter of fact, Luke contributed more to the Bible than Paul did if you look at the verse count. And I want to show you this because I'm, I'm a kind of like a, a I guess, a, a nerd when it comes to numbers. So I wanted to just put this up there on the board. You're going to have it on your handout too. But Luke actually contributed 2,157, 2,157 verses. And Paul in all his writing, including all the epistles and everything that he wrote, only contributed 2,032 verses. The next one in line is John with 1,416. Then you have Matthew with a little over 1,000. And then you have Mark with you know, 678. And then you still have, of course, Peter and James and all those guys. But that's kind of the layout. By the way, you definitely want to write these numbers down. They're going to be on your test later on tonight. So write those numbers in. There's going to be a test. You guys are all laughing. Yeah, it's a joke. Of course, there's not going to be a test. But write it down anyway. I thought it was fun to kind of you know, write the numbers in. So why are we doing a series on Luke? Well, there's two reasons. Number one is, I've really wanted to do like a sermon series that ties in with Doctor Who somehow, and uh, Luke is the only one that really works because he's a doctor, so kind of works with Doctor Luke. And unfortunately, Pastor John took the book of Acts, which I really wanted to do, and so since he was doing that, the only one left because Luke only wrote two books, and that was Luke and Acts, we got stuck with Luke. But Luke actually is really fascinating. The second reason why I want to teach this is because Luke is very different from the other Gospels. As a matter of fact, if you ever have read through all the four Gospels, you will notice that every Gospel is just a little bit different, and it's written to different people and written in, in different styles. And so we're going to learn as we look through Luke that Luke is quite interesting, and Luke has a lot of stuff that he talks about that none of the other Gospel writers talk about. So that's kind of the reason, <clears throat> excuse me, for it. By a show of hands, how many of you guys have actually read through the book of Luke? Like, at least once. All right, put them up high. I want to see. Okay, that's about like... A third, maybe a half. Okay, how many of you guys that are having your hands raised, you have read through Luke at least three times? Five times? Ten times? Okay, I guess. He's like, I guess. I think, okay, good, awesome. So for those of you guys that have not read through it, you're going to read through the book of Luke. And the interesting part of this is, it's going to take us a long time. Because if you know anything about Luke, the first chapter alone, we have 80 verses in the first chapter. So this is going to take us a year or a year and a half. So what we're going to do is we're going to start tonight, obviously, and we're going to go all the way through May. And then we're going to take a summer break as we have our Momentum series going on. And we're going to do the Oscars like we usually do and have combined service and all that kind of stuff. And then we're going to do a part two starting after the summer. So we're going to go through this till we're done. But I believe it's going to be incredibly fascinating for you and, uh, and you're going to learn some stuff that you, I believe, did not know. And I think it's going to teach you something about your life and you're going to apply it to your life. So why are we doing an in-depth study of the Bible? Why is it verse by verse? And again, I'm setting this all up so you guys can kind of get in. So tonight is going to be a setup. And then we're going to cover about 25 verses. And then we're going to pray and you guys are going to go in your small groups. But um, the reason for that can be summed up in the quote that I put on. This is what I want to accomplish in this series. To enable men and women to know Jesus Christ more clearly. To love him more dearly, and to follow him more nearly. 
And I know it's kind of cute and it rhymes and everything, but that's really what I want you guys to get out of this. I want you guys to know Jesus Christ more clearly. Some of you guys, if you're really honest, you don't know Jesus. Well, you don't know him well. And I want you guys to know him well. And the best way to know someone is to study his life. And that's what we're going to do. I want you to love him more. Some of you guys, you love Jesus, but you're going to fall more in love with Jesus. And I want you guys to follow him closely and nearly. Some of you guys, you love him, but you're not really following him that closely. You know what I mean? Like, our lives are not really saying that. Our words are saying we love him, we want to follow him, but our lives are different. So I want us to be close, and I want us to follow him closely, know him, and know who Christ is. So that's our goal. So I'm going to dive in, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to kind of start off. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for your anointing on the word of God, and I pray right now that you would come, that we would have a wonderful time. Holy Spirit, I declare a lot of dependence upon you, and I ask that you would remove me from behind the pulpit, and I ask that you would speak that he would change our lives. And as we look at Luke, that Luke will become alive and that you, Jesus, will be glorified in this place. And we pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said? Amen. Couple of questions right up from the top here. Who is Luke? Why did he write the gospel? And to whom did he write it? And why should we even care? So let's talk about this really quick. So who is Luke? Any, any like, audience? What do you guys think? Who is Luke? What do we know about Luke? Okay, he's an apostle. Okay. He was a disciple of Jesus. Very good. What else? What do we know about Luke, the guy in the New Testament? Yes. Never mind. Okay. Never, okay. Yes, Miss Jeanette. He was a doctor. Very cool. Okay. That's cool. That's, that's good news. He was a doctor. Yes. That's right. He was the writer and the author of the book of Luke. Very good. And he also wrote Acts. Very nice. What else? What else do we know about Luke? He did write some stuff down for Paul and kind of traveled with Paul. Yeah, he was a companion of Paul, traveling companion. Very good. He was a wise man. Yeah, actually, he was educated and he was wise. Definitely, I agree. What else? Any, anybody else get some other stuff? No. Okay, Jason? He was Greek. There you go. That's a good one. He was a Gentile. As a matter of fact, he was the only non-Jew that contributed to the New Testament, which is a big deal. Everybody else that wrote in the New Testament, the Bible that you guys have, the New Testament, everybody in there, every author was Jewish. The only one that was not was Luke. And this is important for us because Luke was a Gentile. He was a Greek. And who are we? Gentiles. Gentiles in the eyes of the Jews. We're not really part of the Jewish nation, even though we got grafted into the Jewish nation, but that's different, and we, we won't talk about this tonight. But we're, we're Gentiles. So this is important because Luke actually wrote the book of Luke to Gentiles. So why should we care? We should care because he actually wrote this book for us. He wrote it for you. He wrote it with a Gentile mindset, and he wanted us to know who Jesus is really is. And who did he write it to? Well, we'll find out here in just a moment, because um, we're going to see that he actually has a greeting in there, and we will find out who Luke actually was. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts, and you've already mentioned most of these. But Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. So he was a traveling companion. He, Luke was also a doctor, and you can see this in Colossians 4.14. If you're wondering, where do we know this stuff from? It's actually in the Bible, Colossians 4.14. It says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor. So obviously here, we know from Paul that he was a doctor. He's the only Gentile Greek and the only non-Jewish contributor to the New Testament. Luke was not only a doctor, he was also a historian, and he was probably the pastor of the church in Philippi. So not just was he a, a medical person, he was also a historian, which is totally opposite and totally different there. And then he was also a pastor. So the guy was obviously brilliant. He was smart, and there was a lot going. The Gospel of Luke was written in Caesarea around 60 A.D., and sometimes the gospel of Luke is referred to as the gospel of St. Paul. And one of the reasons for that is because obviously he leaned heavenly on, on just the contribution of Paul. So he kind of put some of Paul's stuff in there. And also Luke, and I love this, Luke's gospel has been called the gospel 
of prayer. And as we read through the Gospel of Luke, you will see that prayer is all over the place. As a matter of fact, Ian, every time we see Jesus go through a major transition in his life, and when something is happening, when he chose his 12 disciples, when something, there's always prayer involved. When he is on the cross, there's always prayer. Jesus made it a big deal to spend time with his Father. And Luke found that interesting and put that in his Gospel. And I think for us as Gentiles, this is important, and for us as Christians, because you know what? I think prayer is important, right? I think if Luke makes it an important thing, if Jesus makes it an important thing, prayer, there's got to be something to be said about prayer. And I think prayer is extremely important, and you will see this all the way through the book of Luke, and it's going to be really interesting to see this. Now, let's go ahead and start in chapter 1, verse 1. How many of you guys brought your Bibles? Let me see them. Let me see them up high, and I, well, I love for you guys, and I'm totally okay with phones, but if you have an actual Bible, I want to encourage you guys to bring your Bibles because I want you guys to start writing in your Bible. We're going to be reading through this. You want to take some notes in there. We're going to give you a lot of stuff. Myself, Brother Gabriel, uh, Mr. Tony, Pastor Tommy, we're all going to be teaching different um, chapters, and we're going to give you guys some stuff, and I want you guys to write it down because I want you guys to be transformed by this gospel, and I believe we will be. So first one, it says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So apparently Luke knows you. Okay, there have been quite a few people that have already done this, but I'm going to go ahead and write my own account. And then he's, he uses this word that's really interesting. He uses the word draw up an account. And it's almost like Luke is saying, hey, in this account, I want to paint you a picture of who Jesus really is, and I want to paint you um, something different than the other authors did not do. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. There's a legend that says that Luke was a painter. And apparently, somewhere in Spain in a cathedral, there's still to this day a painting that is signed by Luke and is done by Luke. So um, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's a legend, so it might be true. But he's painting a picture here for us. And so what kind of picture is he painting? Again, he's doing something that none of the other authors are doing. There's a couple of things in this gospel that's really interesting. I'm giving you a lot of information here, but it will all tie in, and, and we're going to refer back to this over the next year when we study this. Luke is the only author who really focuses on children and women. And that's important because, you know, hey, who are we? Children could also be, we could put teenagers in there, so he's kind of focusing on, on you guys. And he's focusing on women. Back in those days, women were really not, um, you know, on the same level as men. So he's kind of elevating women and saying, hey, Jesus came for everyone. It is the gospel of the oppressed and the poor. It's the gospel that covers a lot of poverty and spiritual hunger. It also mentions the Holy Spirit more than Matthew and Mark combined, which is really cool because the Holy Spirit, I don't know about you, but the Holy Spirit is pretty important in my life. And as a matter of fact, if you study theology, a lot of our theology about the Holy Spirit comes out of the gospel of Luke and Acts. So Luke, in his own right, is not just a pastor, but he's also a theologian. And we should see him as that. So, I mean, the guy is really, really awesome. He's brilliant. Luke wrote the gospel in chronological or historical order. So he really kind of made a big deal out of making sure that everything was in order. And the gospel of Luke has been called the loveliest gospel in the world. So that's kind of like about Luke. And so he's doing this whole thing. He's, he's going around and he's writing this down. Verse 2. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In other words, he's saying, hey, I, I did not come up with this on my own. I interviewed all the eyewitnesses. Who were the eyewitnesses? The disciples, the apostles. So he interviewed every one of them, apparently, and he got their version of what actually happened and what went down. And then he says this, the servants of the word. And he's obviously referring to the apostles here. But I find this interesting because servants of the word, sometimes when it comes to us in our Christian walk, we, we feel like, Serving God 
we're kind of partners with him, and we are. We, we partner with him in the kingdom. But it's like almost this whole thing of like, God, you and me, we're equal. And when it comes to my life, I got equal rights just as you. You know, I can kind of tell you, you know, what I want and what I don't want to do. And as a matter of fact, we do a lot of times. We tell Jesus, <clears throat> well, this is an area that I, I, I don't really want to have you put your finger on. And so you just kind of kick Jesus out of it. But the apostles were very clear on that. You know what? When we are becoming servants, that means he becomes our master. And that means everything that he says goes. And you've heard me say this a lot, but you know what the truth is? We need to be reminded of this all the time because we don't do it. Right? <clears throat> Excuse me, I still got a cold going on, so you're going to hear a little bit of that. Um, but we, we just, we want to be called servants of God because that's a cool title, and, and we want to be that, and we want him to be our master, but our lives often, we live it the way that we want, and we are servants of the world and pleasure, not so much of the one that we actually say that we're serving. And so I want us to, you know, see this because for us as Christians, Luke is just saying, hey, they were really servants of the Lord, and I, I want to be someone like that. I want to be known as a servant of God, not just someone that said he was, but that actually lived that way. Verse 3, therefore, since I myself have carefully, everybody say carefully, carefully. investigated everything from the beginning. I love what he does here. He's saying, hey, I carefully investigated everything from the beginning. In other words, he did a lot of research, and he's almost saying here, like, by the way, I know that there's Gospels out there, and I know they have been written, but quite frankly, that's not good enough for me. I need to have my own version. I need to make sure this is really true. And, and what we can learn from this is that, you know what, some of you guys, you were raised in church, right? You're raised in a Christian home, and sometimes we feel like, you know, well, it's good enough to have my parents tell me about Jesus, and I just kind of accept it, and then I'll go with it. That's not good enough. You need to, for yourself, investigate Christ, and not just say, just because P.S. said, just because your friend said, just because your pastor or your parents, whoever it is, you need to know for sure that you can say, just like Luke, you know what? I heard all the stories of all these people, of all my leaders, and they talked about Jesus, and it was great, but that wasn't good enough for me. I needed to know for myself. I need to investigate Christ for myself, and I did some meticulous research. I went, and I researched everything from the beginning, and then I found something that was cool, which was Jesus. Now, how many of you guys honestly can say this? And don't raise your hand, because some of you guys, you just accept what's being preached, or partially accept it, and the reason why some of us are really not fully following Christ is because we haven't done this yet. We haven't investigated Christ the way that we ought to, and that's why we live our lives the way that we do. Because if you have truly investigated Christ and you know who he is, you know you don't have a choice, and you're just going to go for it. You're going to give it everything you got. Does that make sense to you guys? So I'm going to challenge you guys in this series. I want you guys to investigate Christ. For those of you guys who don't know Jesus as well as you think or you, know, you want to know him more, this series, I hope, is going to bring you closer to Jesus where you're going to say, okay, Jesus, you are real, and I want you to be everything in my life. I want you to be all-consuming in my life. And truth is, is he all-consuming in our lives? Probably not. And I'm, I'm talking about myself here, too. I want him to be everything. See, the center of our lives should be Jesus. Everything in our lives should be centered around the person of Christ. And a lot of times, we have something else in the center. And if we want to have Jesus in the center, I think we need to investigate him and really do this carefully and not just accept everything. It seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you. Again, Luke wrote this in chronological and historical order, which is really interesting. And he did this um, very precisely. Most excellent Theophilus. Wouldn't that be a great name to have, to have Theophilus? It's a, it's a good name for your son. Theophilus, right? No? Okay, not. 
It's not a good name. Okay, anyway, who is, who is this most excellent Theophilus? Anybody got a, got a guess? Gabby, okay, yeah, actually, if, if you're an instay, we kind of uh, called Gabby Theophilus. I'm not quite sure why, but it just happened one of these days. So, um, so who's Theophilus anyway? Well, he was a high-ranking Roman official, and we see this by most excellent. He had a title there, so he was somebody, he was a Gentile, but he was also a high-ranking uh, Roman official. And so Luke obviously is writing this to him so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So he's saying, Theophilus, I did the investigation so that you may know that what you have been taught is actually true which again is pretty cool. So he dedicates his whole entire book here, and the second book as well, to um, Theophilus. Interesting note here, this is the best Greek in the entire New Testament. Those four verses that you see right here, if you look into the actual Greek, this is the best Greek of the entire New Testament. Why is this important? Again, I'm like, I sound a little nerdy, right, with all the stuff that I'm throwing out to you guys. Why is this important? It's almost like Luke is saying, you know what, this is the most amazing story ever told, and I want to make sure I, I give it everything and I do it right. And if he, if he would have been a historian, he was, any other historian would have opened the book very similar or just like what Luke did. What we have to understand here is Luke is not just some like, you know, dumb little kid writing a book or anything like that. He is, I mean, you have to take him seriously. He was a doctor. He was an historian. He was a theologian in his own right. He was a pastor. Sometimes when it comes to Christians and, you know, we feel like, well, it's just, you know, that's, that's a Christian thing and they don't really know what they're talking about. Luke knew what he was talking about. When, when you go to see a doctor, you want that doctor to really be able to give you the right diagnosis. You want him to, if he opens you up, you know, knows what he's doing so he can put you back together, right? I mean, you want a good doctor, right? Would you want to have a doctor that just doesn't know what they're doing, just going to open you like, oh, man, I didn't know that was in there. I hope that's not important. That's not what you want, right? You want someone that really knows what they're doing. If Luke was a doctor, he was trained. He was a trained physician, meaning that when he did anything, he knew what he was doing. I promise you, what I can deduct from that is that I promise you, Luke, when he did his whole doctoring thing, he took what he did over there and took that into when he wrote his book. And he was very meticulous and made sure that everything was right. And so I believe we can trust Luke in when he's writing this stuff down. As a matter of fact, when you read through Luke, one of the things that you will see, he constantly names people's names and dates. It's almost like he's saying, hey, by the way, in case you're wondering, I'm giving you all this historical data as well to just make sure that this actually Happen. And we'll see this in just a second. He's in verse 5. It says this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Again, he's naming the king so you can kind of name, you know, like you know what time period it is. And, and Herod obviously was a king that actually existed. So he's making sure that history right is, is in his writings here. Who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah and his wife Elizabeth was also descendant of Aaron. Now, the way you became a priest back in those days was kind of not by choice, but just by where you came from. In other words, he was an descendant of Aaron, so if you were a descendant of Aaron, you just became a priest. That's just the way it is. So him and his wife, which was unusual, both of them were descendants of Aaron, and he was a priest. Now, there was about, you know, if you think about Aaron, that was like thousands of years prior, and so all his descendants from Aaron, every one of the males, they were priests. There was quite a few priests around. You probably had about over 20,000 priests, and not everybody was able to go in the temple, which will make sense in a second, and actually offer sacrifices. And uh, he was an educated man. He was a priest. He studied the law. He studied the Torah. So he was, a, um, again, an intelligent man. And then it says this about him. Verse 6. This is a crazy description. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. They were both upright. They were observing all the Lord's commandments, and they did so blamelessly. Anybody else can name up here for that description? 
Not really, right? I mean, that is amazing. I'm like, wow, God, that, that would be quite, you know, quite a compliment. And then it says this, verse 7, but, you know when there's a but, it's never like something good, it's always bad, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years, which, if you know anything about Bible, you know that this was a big deal because it was a curse. It was seen as a curse. A woman that was not able to bear a child was seen as cursed. So you have a priest here that was a priest uh, serving, and you have his wife, and she's barren. So they're probably seen as cursed, and they have been long um, advanced in years. He was probably in the 60s or 70s, maybe even older than that, and, um, and he doesn't have any kids. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot. This is the way that had, how they determined who was going to go into the temple, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Again, think about this. Only a couple of people, you know, go, go into it. You have 20,000 priests. There's a good chance that in your entire lifetime as a priest, you will never see the Holy of Holies. You will never actually enter the temple. Zechariah gets chosen by lot. This had to be one of the best days of his life, maybe even the best. I mean, like, the chance of him getting there, slim. He gets chosen. He gets to be part of this, and he's going into the temple. And uh, this is kind of what we keep on reading in verse 10. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So everybody else is outside. Zechariah is about to enter the temple. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? I mean, just imagine this. You're coming into the sanctuary, you're coming into the church, you're at the altar, you're praying, and then all of a sudden there's this huge angel that appears right next to you. Who would not be scared, right? I'll be like, I hope I'm holy because I know you have a sword and I hope you're not going to cut me down. That would be one of those like, things that is going through my mind. Of course he was scared. He was, he was just absolutely like, you know, trembling with fear. And, and then all of a sudden this angel like talks to him. And he says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Thanks. I was wondering about that, right? Did I have to be afraid? Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. I wonder how many years... He had been praying this. And I promise you, he knew exactly what prayer that angel was talking about. We don't, you know, really know, but we do know what prayer he was talking about because I promise you, Zechariah prayed for one thing, and he prayed for it often, that he may have a son. And he may have been praying that for 30, 40 years. And then the angel comes and says, hey, by the way, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John, which is awesome because the angel is making his life really easy and just saying, hey, by the way, name him John. Do you know how hard it is to find a name for your kids? No, you don't because you don't have any kids, I know. But your parents, if you ask them, it's not easy because, I mean, you're going to be stuck with that name for the rest of your life. So you want to make sure that your kids have a good name. I remember when I was naming my son, we had the names kind of down off. We wanted him to be Zadok and Nehemiah. So we had those two names, Nehemiah and Zadok. But I could not make up my mind which way I wanted to go. Like, did I want him to be Zadok Nehemiah or did I want him to be Nehemiah Zadok? I just couldn't figure it out. And, and I just, you know, I, I, I'm slow when it comes to those kind of decisions. And so, you know, I was the one that was going to make the final call on that. And, and my son was born, and we were in the hospital, and, you know, he's, he's alive. And, and I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to name my son. And so literally at one point, I just left the room and said, you know what, um, I just got to go and pray because I can't figure this out. So I was in the hospital pacing back and forth kind of trying to figure out what to name my son. Obviously, I named him Zadok Nehemiah, which I think is the right way, and it was perfect, but man, it's not easy to name your child. So the, ga the Gabriel here is making it really easy, and he's just saying, by the way, just name him John, which is weird, though, because nobody in his family was called John. So now he has to call his son. Usually, you would name your son by your name, and he would be like, you know, the same name that you have as the dad. And then he says this. I love this. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice of his birth. 
That is cool. The angels come, hey, by the way, you got a son. His name is John. He's going to be awesome. That's really what he's saying right here. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. In other words, he's going to be a man of God. I mean, that is incredible. If you, are, if you can put yourself in that position of thinking, when I have a son and an angel comes to me, he's going to say, hey, your son, Jason, is going to be an awesome man of God. Wouldn't you be excited about that? I'll be like, man, this is so cool. He never is to take any wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Now, that sounds pretty good, right? What we don't understand is that this is huge because for us, we're like, yeah, that's cool. He's going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. We know about Pentecost. We know that the Holy Spirit has been poured out. We know that we can receive the Holy Ghost. Everything is fine. Well, back in the day, that was not quite the same way. See, between the Old and the New Testament, there was a period called the silent years, the 400 silent years, where God did not speak and no prophets were in Israel. And so this is kind of right after that 400 silent years, and the Holy Spirit would only come on certain people, priests, kings, and prophets. So when the angel said this, by the way, your son is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that's a big deal. So, I mean, this is like super, super exciting. And then he says this, many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. Oh, man, we need people like that. We need people that bring America back to the Lord. We need people that bring the church back to God. We have gone so far away from where God wants us to be, and we need to bring him back. Wouldn't it be great if we have some people in 5979 that would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that would go after God with all their heart, and that would bring this nation back? I know you guys are not very excited about it, but this is what I live for. This is why I'm a youth pastor, to see that that some of you guys will catch that vision and say, you know what, PS, we're with you. We're going to turn this nation around. We're going to make sure that people will see Jesus for who he is. And that's one of the reasons, again, why we're studying this, that you will so fall in love with this word that, that you, can't, you just can't do anything about it. You just have to go out and change the world. Verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of the power and the power of Elijah. Once again, we read this, sounds cool. If you know who Elijah is, that's a big deal. Prophet in the Old Testament, pretty amazing prophet, you know, raised the dead, you know, part of the Jordan, pretty powerful. That is awesome. I mean, like, your son's going to be really anointed. And then he says this, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. We live in a generation that is, you know, fatherlessness is a big deal. And there's so many fathers that, you know, um, sleep around with, with uh, young ladies, and then they leave the young ladies to fend for themselves. And they're like, I don't want anything to do with my daughter or my son. And here he's saying, man, there's going to be, he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. I pray that the fathers in America will turn their hearts back to their children. And if you have an awesome dad, man, you should be so thankful. You should thank God for it and say, God, thank you for a father. If you don't have a dad, we should be so excited that we have a father in heaven that is so much better than any earthly father that we could ever have. And that usually, you know, when we walk with him, he puts someone else in our life that will become a father figure. God is huge on fathers. And the devil knows that, which is why he's taking them out. And we as a body, we should pray against that. We should pray for fathers to stand up. And we should pray that all you young men, listen, everybody, every young man look at me, that you guys will become fathers in this generation. That we don't make the same mistake that is already happening all over. That when we find a young lady, that we honor her, that we stay with her, and that we raise those kids together. Amen. Good preaching. I'll help you out. Right? That's the way it ought to be, and I believe that's the spirit of Elijah, and I hope that it's going to be poured out in our generation as well. And the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel. He hasn't said anything till then. 
And now he's speaking, and he should have been quiet. He shouldn't have said this, and you will find out why in just a moment if you don't know the story. How can I be sure of this? Again, I mean, he's been waiting for 30 years. He's old in age, so, I mean, there's a reason why he's asking this. I'm an old man, and my wife is well young, along in years. Again, he should have been quiet. Now, this is the response. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel. And he's about to give his resume. L l listen to this. I stand in the presence of God. That's a big deal, right? Well, it's like I would be like shaking in my boots at that point. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'd said something and I shouldn't have opened my mouth. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you don't believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Man, Gabriel was bad. I mean, like, he didn't even say, like, you know, by the way, God is saying this. He's like, you know, I'm saying you're going to be silent. It's like, whoa, the guy's got some authority right there. And so Zechariah now can't talk anymore, which is pretty bad, because um, when he walks out, he can't really speak. Meanwhile, in verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And do you know why he stayed so long in the temple? It's because, obviously, he was meeting with God. He was meeting with an angel. And the reason why... And wouldn't it be great if we have church services that last for three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine hours? Not because somebody's preaching that long, because that's, that's a lot, you know, that's too much. But because the presence of God is so thick in the place that we just want to stay there for the rest of the night. We had a worship service now, college and career ministry. By the way, if you are a senior, you are welcome to join us any Thursday night at 8 o'clock. We meet here, downstairs or upstairs. And if you're a senior, we want you to come and join us for that. But we had a worship service, just all-night worship kind of. And when we say all-night, it's really the service time. So it's not all-night, but it's an hour and a half of worship. But, man, it was incredible. We had one of my friends come in, he let worship. And I was just, I was sitting over there, I was standing, and I was like, God, this is amazing. It was just one of those moments where you just want to stay there for forever. When you're in the presence of God, man, then you just don't want to leave. And I, I, my prayer for 2015 is that we will have times in the presence of God again where you just want to stay, where you don't want to leave, where I don't get to preach, where nobody gets to preach, where we just stay and we just sit at a stone and just say, God, you're so amazing. And I hope that you guys can join me in that and just come expecting that 2015 is going to be a year that's going to, going to change all of our lives. Amen? Wouldn't that be great? Verse 22, when he came out, he could not speak to them. Again, that's, that's kind of bad, man. You were just in the presence of God, and you can't tell him anything. I mean, you want to be like, hey, I saw Gabriel, and he shut me up. And you can't tell anything of that. You just have to be quiet and trying to, like, motion what was happening. And, you know, like, it's not like that he could have just grabbed an iPad and be like, hey, by the way, let me just text you what's going on, or an iPhone, or, like, even paper. I mean, that, that's not the way it works. So it probably was not easy to really tell them, hey, this is actually what, what just happened here. And, uh, but they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple before he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed... He returned home. And I'm going to give you the biggest point for me that I got out of this as I was studying this, and that is this. You know what? He had been praying for an answer for his prayer for 30, 40 years. And you know what I find interesting? That he got his answer at a certain place. He got his answer in the temple when he met with God. I think that the church ought to be a place where we come in and where we get answers. Answers to our prayers, answers to the question. And again, as we're studying this, I hope that some of you guys, you're going to have some questions, and you have some questions that you may have never shared with anybody else about the gospel, about Jesus. And I pray that over this next year and a half, as you go on this journey or this next year, whatever it's going to take, that we will literally get the answers that we need to follow Christ with all of our hearts. Amen? Man, I, I, I want to see that so bad, guys. I want you guys to be so in love with Jesus that you just can't stop. Last verse here, or last two. After his, this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. Yay, finally. And for five months remained in seclusion. I love this. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor 
and taken away my disgrace among the people. He was a woman who was barren, who was cursed, who was seen as cursed, and now she was favored by God. And not just favored, I mean, we're talking about like she was going to have one of the greatest men that ever walked this earth. I mean, John was quite the man. And we'll see this in a moment or in the next few weeks because we're going to study John and we're going to look at his life. And man, he was awesome. He was crazy, but he was awesome. The guy that, you know, ate locusts and all that kind of stuff. A little, little crazy, weird stuff, but it was, it was pretty powerful what, what he did. I love the way this closes here, and we're going to close right out here. But, you know, like he, he took the disgrace from Elizabeth. I remember the day that God took the disgrace away from my life. Because, you know, I was born and raised in church, and, and there was a time in my life where I just walked away from God and said, you know, forget this. I want to go after the pleasures of the world. I want to serve the world. I don't want to serve God anymore. But I remember the day when I went to the cross and said, God, I, I lay it all down, and I want you. And, and I hope that if you haven't made that kind of a decision and haven't laid everything at the cross, that the next few weeks, the next year, that this is what you're going to do. You're going to lay everything at the cross. You're going to leave it there, and you're going to be forever changed. That's my prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just come right now as we go into our small groups and that you would just give us um, just an incredible time of talking and, and talking through what we've learned and what you do in our lives. God, I pray that you would make us hungry for your word, that everyone in here will love your word so much that we will just consume it all the time. And we pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. What I want you guys